Welcome to The GAC Files, a podcast about the people, issues and ideas driving Global Affairs Canada. Bienvenue dans les dossiers d'AMC, un balado sur les personnes, les défis et les idées qui animent Affaires mondiales Canada. And now, introducing your host, Global Affairs Canada's David Morrison. Et maintenant, présentant votre hôte, David Morrison, d'Affaires mondiales Canada. Giuseppe Basile works in Global Affairs Canada's consular branch, where he specializes in cases involving children. Some of these children have been illegally abducted by one of their parents and taken abroad, leaving the other parent here in Canada wondering how to get the children back or how even to get a chance to speak to them on the telephone. Giuseppe works to resolve such cases but also tries to help the left-behind parent cope. His work is demanding and often heart-wrenching. Giuseppe recently came by my office to talk about it. So, Giuseppe, thanks for coming by. Um, we, we have uh, only just met, which makes you uh, different from many of the people we've had here on the GAC Files so far. Um, but you were suggested by uh, a number of listeners because you have a fascinating job. Um, you work in consular affairs, which is uh, different from most of the service lines or most of the things that the department does as it uh, involves services directly to uh, Canadians from all walks of life. But within consular, you work in the family unit on the Middle East desk, which means you are uh, involved in some of the trickiest, consular, most complicated cases that we have. Um, I was just sharing with you that I ran into uh, Omar Al-Gabra last night, who, um, uh, as many would know, was until very recently uh, uh, the parliamentary secretary for consular affairs. Uh, Omar called you one of the unsung heroes of the department um, for your work helping families in very challenging circumstances. So we want to hear all about that. But uh, as always, let's start at the beginning. I'm going to guess that uh, Giuseppe Basile is Swedish. but you. <laughs> um, so tell me about you know your, your family... I know you're from slightly west of the Pearson building, but you can you can fill us in. Over to you. Yeah, before I do, that's very nice uh, to hear what Mr. Algabra had to say, but I'd like to think that uh, all my colleagues, we all have a certain case that is a little complicated and difficult to manage. Um, but from where I'm from, so not too far from Sweden, <laughs> a little further south, my family comes from the southern part of Italy. All right. Uh, Where like, exactly? So you? my father is from uh, a town about an hour from Bari in mm. the south, in the heel part of Italy. Right, right. My mother is from a region of Calabria, so even further south. Sure. Calabrese. Calabrese, yeah. yeah. So the, my parents met here, uh, but my father came here on the boat uh, when he was 17. And on my mother's side... Here being Canada being or Ottawa? To Ottawa, actually. Oh, okay. He... he the, the, he says the boat arrived at Pier 21 in Halifax, mm -hmm. and then he got on a train for 24 hours and uh, 
came to Ottawa. Mm. And he always tells the stories about, you know, all the Italian immigrants, they all have the same stories about how the sliced <laughs> are, are bread is like glue <laughs> and the tomatoes in the stores were not the same and how the olive oil was Portuguese. So they all have these stories. And he talks about how, you know, on the train from Halifax to Ottawa, how it was like a Western movie. Mm. And it was so, there was no towns, the roads were small, uh, there was no people around. It was like, a, you know, one of these Western <laughs> he should, villages. He should, and he thought, he should see the real way. <laughs> <laughs> and then he thought, uh, what am I doing here? Mm. And he, you know, they came here alone with no money, no language, and no education. Mm. Um, but yeah, so I grew up in the West End. Uh, my father did when he when he came. Did did he go right to the West End or did he go to Little no Italy? to Little Italy? Yeah, it's Preston course, Street, course, right? And yeah. so it's funny enough that on my mother's side, um, my grandparents ran like a, my my grandfather worked, but my grandmother ran. A, they had a room and board mm. house. You know, they had a three story house in Preston Street. So as the immigrants would arrive, you know, she would take in these families and give them a house and somewhere to live mm. while they set up and found their own place and found their own job. Um, the priest and, and, was also very involved, and so there was there was a whole community <laughs> approach to helping people settle and right. get oriented because no one spoke the language and no yeah. one had any education. No one had knew what to do. So it was about setting up shop and, and getting and, and, things started. And, and, and did your father become more satisfied with the tomatoes? When yeah, eventually they, found, <laughs> eventually they found someone who grew the right tomatoes and has someone who knew where to get the grapes to make the wine. Right, right. But, um, yeah, eventually all that happened. My father then started his own construction business, and it, he became he was successful. He had at one point I think over three hundred people working for him, wow. and so right it was a local business. It's a local business, and he's still working today. He's in his mid seventies, and he refuses to quit. But um, yeah. that's a that's a real immigrant story. So yeah, so you you're, you you grew up in the West End, right? Um, we didn't grow up where all the Italians lived. We <laughs> grew up further west. Um, so I actually went to school in Barhaven, mm. in the very west end of Ottawa, uh, and I was one of the only kids with a strange name. Everyone else was, you know, Mike or Chris or mm. Laura or Megan. Or, mm. But so my mother actually told them to just call me Joseph because Giuseppe translates to Joseph. And I remember in grade five, uh, the teacher didn't get the right list, and my, my real name was on the list. <laughs> And so she read out my name, and everyone looked around. Saying, we don't have one of those. That? <laughs> and I raised my hand, and uh, ever since then she says, "Well, we're just going to call you Giuseppe from yeah. now on." I said, Good. and so I was just too afraid to say no. Yeah. So I just said, "Okay," and that was it. And that was it. Yeah. So <laughs> full, full <laughs> conversion. My, that's my story. <laughs> so, so you you went through uh, school in the West End, and do you, do you have siblings? Yeah, I'm the oldest of four. Okay. And um, are others, other of your siblings, or are your siblings public servants? Or what, what, what drew mm. you to no, a government our, career? Actually, um, so my youngest sister, she's still in school. Mm. Uh, my brother is working with my father. And uh, one sister is just starting out, so she, she's started in government as well. Mm. But what brought me here, um, it's funny, because you think back about, you know, what attracts you to you know, the, the scope of this department, the internationalness mm. of this department. And I can't help but think back to, you know, m my first trips as a kid and going back to Italy to visit right. family. And you think to yourself, it's so, you know, I was fascinated by the fact that people live in other countries and have a different life. And 
speak a different language、mm. and eat weird food and drive strange cars, you know. So that was always interesting to me. And then as I started going through school, you learn about how Canadians are working abroad and what they're doing、mm. and the different things they're doing for this country, but not in this country. So、right. that was always interesting. So that's what attracted me to this place.、Um, And and when you when you pitched up here, you I mean,、uh, looking at your CV, you, you worked at、uh, agriculture for a while. But when you pitched up here, you started in in personnel. Yeah, so I, I, I worked on the corporate side in, in HR、uh, on teams for recruitment of foreign service officers. So I did that for a little while.、Um, I also worked in, in the assignment section, working on the head of mission file, so coordinating the process of. Canada's ambassadors and how they go abroad and setting them up to go,、um, and then I started in consular. So let's. I mean, it's it's the head of mission process is is perhaps <laughs> should be、uh, maybe a whole podcast on that. Yeah. We're we're at that season、uh, right now, but but let's fast forward then to your work in in consular.、Um, Tell us briefly about: Did you enter a competition, or did you get headhunted, or how did you switch from corporate over to consular? Yeah, it was always interesting to see. You know, you hear about the crises that happen around the world, and you see how this department has a role to play. And so, the you know the list came out with, with jobs available, and so I, I applied. I, you no know, thinking, you know, I'll give it a shot, and then I interviewed and. And I was selected. So, you know, there were some positions in case management, and one that was interesting to me was always the one with the family unit,、mm. in the working on cases related to children and families and the different things that they go through. Right. So,、uh, my understanding is that in the in the children's unit, you have、uh, cases that generally fall into four categories. Um, I have those listed as parental child abduction, forced marriages, child welfare, child abandonment, or children that get orphaned、mm-hmm. abroad, and and maybe there's a, a couple of more、uh, in terms of families that are in dispute and and、um, uh, children and youth arrested abroad. But but tell me,、um, when you start, you just you deal with what comes in the door, or are things subdivided, or how do you? So, in in terms of the way we divide our work, yeah, yeah. So, within our within consular, there's、um, case management division, and within that division, there's the a section that deals with you know high profile political cases.、Um, then there's a division that deals with anything related to、um, anything that happens to a Canadian abroad, and there we divide it into things that involve children and families or、okay. things that don't. So. In order for it to come our way, there has to be something about a child, or the welfare, the of, the welfare child, of a child, or、sure. the, the well-being of the family.、Um, yeah, if I mean a, a mother who's facing domestic abuse and wants to leave with her children, that would come. Something like that would come our way.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. You、uh, told me briefly of the particular challenges of doing this kind of work.、Um, In contexts、uh, very different from the Canadian context, the issue of dual citizenship is another layer of complexity because many countries don't recognize、uh, dual citizenship. So we have a, we as Canada 
believe we have an obligation to intervene, and, and uh, some of the uh, countries uh, don't agree with that. Um, in your part of the world, there are very different legal systems and very different customs and mores. I'm mm -hmm. speaking here of the Middle East. Mm -hmm. Tell us about some of the, without obviously naming names or, or even revealing which countries, tell us about some of the more complex uh, issues or cases you've had to deal with. Mm -hmm. Well, my mind automatically goes to cases involving parental child abduction. So these are cases where, you know, um, there's usually a an existing custody dispute or some sort of dispute between mom and dad while in Canada. And for one reason or another, I'll just say the father decides he's going to take the children and bring them abroad and not come home. Um, Sometimes there is communication between parents, between the left-behind parent and the children, but often there's not. So it's very much... Sometimes we see these things in the movies that, you know, uh, the kids lose contact with their mother, and I have cases where a mother hasn't spoken to her children in two years, or a father as well hasn't spoken to his children in two mm -hmm. years. Um, there's... I can't think of a, a more recent case where... A mother just lost her children maybe six months ago, and it was odd because both parents had such an important role in the life of the children here. You know, right. there wasn't a, a situ it wasn't a situation where a, a sole custodian. There was a, it was a shared custody situation, yeah. and all yeah. of a sudden yeah. kids are gone. So when when this happens, it's 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 a very legal issue, and our our Canadian courts may rule that you know they may award custody to the left behind parent in order that the children come back. But our Canadian court orders don't really speak right. to foreign courts, particularly those in the Middle East, where custody disputes are um, adjudicated by Sharia law. Right. So our court orders don't speak to each other. So this is one of the challenges that many left-behind parents face. So they'll have to go overseas or hire a lawyer to represent them and, and ask the court for permission to return back to Canada with their kids. Ask, ask the court in the, in the, the middle, in, in whatever country. country right. right. And this becomes even more complicated for dual nationals, like you were saying. You know, um, often they won't recognize a Canadian nationality not, and they won't even recognize our court orders. So once they're in, and I'll say Lebanon, because we, we do have a, a, a large volume of cases in Lebanon. There's so many Lebanese Canadians. Um, you know, once they go to Lebanon, they're, Leb they're, they're Lebanese nationals. They're in their country, and so right. this is, and that's how the courts might view it. So it, it's a very lengthy process and becomes very, very complicated legalistically. Yeah, and very complicated for these parents who are left behind who don't have any contact with their kids. There are a, a number of prevention regimes or prevention mechanisms. Mm -hmm. uh, I can think of uh, the stricture that all parents face, frankly, when they're traveling al alone with their children, that they need the permission of the other parent. Mm -hmm. um, that is uh, uh, something that is, um, uh, happens, I think, especially for uh, divorced parents. Um, <clears throat> people carry their court orders with them, proving that they have custody and so on. There's also the Hague Convention, 
that maybe you can explain exactly how it works, but my understanding is that if a country has signed up to the Hague Convention, they have agreed either to enforce another country's court order or at least to cooperate in child custody disputes. How does it happen that uh, with these kinds of protections, Canadian children end up kind of in, in limbo abroad? I guess, you know, when, when I leave, uh, try to leave the country with my children, I always get asked, uh, do I have permission from the other parent? Yeah. So do those things break down or how? You know, in, for us in Canada, because we have no exit controls, it's, there's no formal authority to check that the permission is in place. Oh, it's, it's, it's the entrance. Yeah, we uh, only check on, uh, upon entry. I see. Okay. That's right. Okay. So when you come back to Canada, you, you'll, face, you'll, you'll likely face a lot of questions if you're traveling with, with, with children and without the other parent. Right. But upon exit, you know, it might be a keen uh, check-in agent who might notice right. something is off that right. might check it. Or the parent that isn't traveling might have suspicions that something's going on and the police have already been contacted and there might be something happening. There might be a flag at the airport, but there's no formal list um, that exists that says, you know, certain children can't travel because they don't have the permission of their parents. So they get taken overseas and not understanding what's happening and usually under false pretense, you know, it's, I'm going on vacation with my father um, and then they find out that they're all of a sudden registered in a foreign school with foreign children and speaking a new language and right. they, they you know they don't right. understand. Right. And so this is this is what they face. And how does the Hague Convention work? So the Hague Convention is used to help determine habitual place of residence. Um, so with countries that recognize, we say that they recognize each other. So for example, Canada recognizes a country like France or Great Britain under the Hague Convention. So if the children are taken the left-behind parent files an application here in Canada through a, a central authority with, within their province. That application gets sent to the other country, and it says something, you know, it says, hey, these children are, are, are in Canada. We would like to raise this to your attention um, and determine place of habitual residence. So it'll go to court in that country, and the judge will determine whether the habitual place of residence is Canada or in that right. current right. place. Right. So... In countries that aren't Hague signatory, they don't look. They don't necessarily always consider habitual place of residence. I see. So that's where it, it gets complicated. Um, and in countries of the Middle East, it's they don't look at habitual place of residence necessarily first. They might look at, you know, the the laws under Sharia law and uh, the responsibilities and the the authorities and the um, the guardianship laws about the parent. Do you have um, any, any experience? So there's Sharia law, there's different legal systems. Mm-hmm. There's also mother or father. Have you run into uh, differences in that regard overseas where one country prioritizes um, or treats a mother and a father, or mother differently than a father in a custody case? A little bit, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I managed also cases in, in Europe. And so, particularly in Eastern Europe, they'll uh, it'll they defer to the mother. Um, in the Middle East, they defer to the father, right. as per Sharia law. Um, but at, at some age, the the custody changes. Um, they will, as the children get older, they might switch from mother to father, or vice versa. So, it depends on the country. But yes, 
we tend to see that. Tend to see that. Uh-huh. And whereas in places like Canada and the United States, supposedly it's completely neutral. And supposedly, yeah, it's supposed to be neutral, and, and the, the, you know, I can't speak for the courts, but they tend to look at the well-being of the child right, and, right, and, and right. take these into consideration. Talk to us a little bit about um, the more challenging aspects. Uh, you've talked about the, the legal challenges. Mm-hmm. Talk to us a little bit about the um, uh, challenges of having a telephone ring in the middle of a podcast. <laughs> Talk to us a little bit about um, the challenges you personally face as you're having to deal with uh, the families. Uh, a, a, you know, a, a mother who has lost contact with her minor children, often in sometimes these are kids that are three, four, five years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's tough. I mean, you, and you sit at your desk and you see the, and the phone rings. You don't always know who's, you never really know who's on the other side and what they're going to say. Mm-hmm. Um, so in cases like you've just described, um, you know, you see these parents that are left behind and, and, and if they can't speak to their kids for years, it, you could feel that it eats at them and you, could, you, could, you really get a sense of that. And your job isn't necessarily to um, help, how do I say this? You're there to offer support where you can. And at my level, I will never feel the same thing that a left-behind parent feels. I'll never feel that because I can't go through that experience. And I can't... You, the sympathy you can offer is a little awkward. Mm. Um, you'll never know what... You'll never understand it until you're feeling it. So you'll see that they often speak... One left-behind parent will find another one and they, you know, right. they'll, they'll find comfort in that. But for us, it's tough because you... You, you know what to say, but you don't know what to say. Right. You know, you can only offer, offer so much support and so much comfort because you're never going to understand yeah. what they're going through. Do you deal with these people only on the telephone, or have you met some of them? I've met, I've met a few. Yeah. Some of them come to Ottawa. They, have, they want to meet. They ask for senior-level meetings. They want to meet the minister, or they want to... They happen to be in Ottawa for one reason or another, and so they'd like to meet us, and so they come and you right. know, sit in the lobby and sit down for a few minutes. Um, yeah, they often, but it's mostly over the phone. Yeah. So, which makes it a little tough because it's it's much easier to have a face to face conversation, yeah. you know, and and offer support in such a difficult situation. Like these situations are are life changing for people like that go through this. You know, it's the worst day of their life, and you're on the phone with them, and and there's only so much you can say. Yeah. Yeah. They'll never feel comfort until they have their kids back. Yeah. You know, you know for, um, uh, I mean, this is a real privilege to have you talking about this and, and the, you know, what it takes, frankly, mm-hmm. to deal directly with Canadians in distress. Mm-hmm. Our Department of Global Affairs um, uh, often is is characterized as, you know, fancy people yeah. at fancy cocktail parties around swimming pools and so on. At least that's been the historical <laughs> caricature. Whereas um, what you and your colleagues are doing is uh, extraordinarily uh, challenging in terms of uh, delivering critical services directly to Canadians in, mm-hmm. in obvious distress. How does it affect you? 
what do you, you know, I assume you have good days and bad days, but the emotion of this must, must wear on you. Yeah, I'm, that's a good question because you, you don't really know how it's affecting you until something happens, if that's yeah. a good way of putting it. You know, I don't think, I think about now and I, I feel fine. I go do my job. I do what I can. I, I try the best I can to offer the support. And I know my colleagues are the same. But, you know, you think about five years from now, if I'm not doing this job anymore, what's, what did that do to me? Yeah. You know? And so... <laughs> I've, and, you, and you've been doing it for four years. Four years, right. Um, and, you know, sometimes you walk the floor and then you see some people who have a, a you know, their doors closed and, you mm. know, there's a, they're working on a tough case. And I think some of these worst calls, I think about these child abduction cases, they're, they're difficult, but some, we deal with a lot of death cases. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you have to call a family member to tell them that their brother or sister or someone right. passed away abroad, that's hard. Yeah. And so those are long days and it's, it's difficult what to What kind of training did you uh, receive to do, to do this kind of work? It, you know, it's, um, you have to have an understanding of our network. Right. I think that's, really important to understand our, our, our missions abroad and the different things that we can do overseas. Um, you know, who can our missions speak to and how we talk and how we approach things. So that's one of the understanding the mission. But I think a lot of it is you, you just have to have a, a compassion and caring mm-hmm. for people. And, you know, the people that I work with and we're all we all have the same level of, of compassion. We kind of understand that people go through difficult things and, and we you know you're keen to offer support and help. Uh, but in terms of formal training on how to help people when they're on the phone and right. clear distress, it's 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 very much on the job in practice. Sure. Yeah. How do you and your colleagues support each other? You know what we we, we actually laugh a lot. Oh. <laughs> 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 You know, we uh, we eat lunch together all the time, mm-hmm. and you know it's it's a bit of a mental break because sure. you know before lunch you do three four hours of work, uh, and it's heavy. But then you know we sit together at lunch and you know you poke fun at each other. Mm. Uh, we don't really talk much about the case. You know, you, you exchange mm-hmm. notes on oh I'm in this difficult situation with this case. What did you do mm. in that case? Oh right, and you know we compare notes, but. You know, you have to sometimes really, it's like a switch. You have to turn it off. Right. And so when we do, we we generally just laugh. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like you have some good colleagues. (laughs) We talked a little bit beforehand. Uh, You also personally go to the gym. I know you're uh, you're, uh, a fitness instructor in in your (laughs) non-back life. We had a brief riff about the after-work dilemma. Should I go to the gym? Should I go for drinks? Should I try to do both? Um, anyhow, it is, uh, it, it sounds like, especially for you and your colleagues, uh, you, you really do need um, some kind of uh, non-work way to wind down after, yeah. after, after the intense stuff you do. Yeah, you have to. You have to find a way that works for you. Some people don't, actually, I don't, I don't even like the gym. I hate going. But I, I know I have to go three times a week. I, have my, I teach my cycling class, so I do that a few times. But some people, you know, they they want to read or they want to just go for a walk mm-hmm. or they want to mm-hmm. socialize, whatever you do, but you have to find something that works for you yeah. that helps you to turn it off. Um, but for me, I, I like to what is, go work what, did, what, what, is, uh, what does your dad think of, uh, of what you do? I don't know. Yeah. I, well, I think they're proud. They, they, yeah. you know, they, 
they kind of it's it's very foreign to them. Like sure. they they don't this whole diplomacy thing is not something that was is on their radar. And, um, but they're they're proud, you know. They sometimes at family gatherings, like blackberry rings, and you know, yeah. there's yeah. an important case going on. Sure. So they're like, okay, okay. Or at the cottage, and the family yeah. always gathers at the cottage. Yeah. So I know if I have a case and we're on the boat, I bring my blackberry with me, and right. it starts ringing. So. But right. they're, uh, so they, they know you're doing something. They know I'm doing something. I mean, I don't, I can't, you know, I, I can't really yeah. share everything yeah. or anything. But yeah, they're, they're I, I, I like to think they're proud. Well, yeah. I, I, um, I, I will get in touch with them and, <laughs> and tell them to listen to this podcast, uh, and I can, not. I can guarantee you that they'll be proud of you. So, and 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 we are because you're doing. You and your colleagues actually are doing extraordinary work on behalf of the department, but really on behalf of Canadians. Thank so, uh, Giuseppe, uh, Joseph, Giuseppe, uh-huh. uh, um, thank you for what you do every day. Thank you to your um, colleagues, and uh, keep doing it. Thanks very much for this uh, opportunity to talk about it. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion. If you have feedback or suggestions for future topics or guest speakers, please send David an email. Nous espérons que vous avez apprécié la discussion d'aujourd'hui. Si vous avez des commentaires ou des suggestions concernant de sujets futurs ou de nouveaux conférenciers, veuillez envoyer un courriel à David. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of The GAC Files. Merci d'avoir écouté le balado et nous espérons que vous vous joindrez à nous pour le prochain épisode des dossiers d'AMC.